If you've ever traveled, which I'm going to just assume that living in this country, you've driven around a little bit. Uh, If you've ever traveled anywhere across country, you know that signposts are really helpful. If you're driving down the interstate, uh, signposts are helpful because, first of all, if you don't have a GPS unit, they tell you where you are. You can look and you can see a mile marker on the interstate. You can see what's coming up. You can see what exit is next. You know where they are. Signposts are really helpful. And signs give us directions. You come up to a Y in the interstate and you don't know which way to go, you follow the sign. Signposts are very helpful for us when we're traveling. Um, it, it's helpful, though, if you actually look at the signposts. Um, when, when I was in college, uh, a few years ago now, um, I had a 1981 Ford van. It was a party van. It was decked out with gray carpet, red interior lights. It had 150,000 miles on it. Uh, And the purpose of the party van was that there was about seven or eight guys and uh, men and women from my hometown that went to the Moody Bible Institute together. And I had the party van because uh, it was a way to get everyone back home. And so one uh, one weekend we had come back, all eight or nine of us, we were shoved in the party van. And uh, we had spent like Thanksgiving at home. We were driving back to Chicago and I did not do my studying for this test that was coming up Monday. And so I'm driving and we get between Iowa City and the Quad Cities somewhere on the way back to Chicago. And uh, I, I say, you know, what? I cannot drive anymore. I've got to study. So I said to my friend, I said, here's the keys you drive. I'm going to go in the back and I'm going to study. And he says, that's great. So he starts driving. I'm in the back studying. And I studied for like two, two and a half hours. And I thought, you know, I wonder how close we are to Chicago. And so I looked up And I expected to see a sign that said like maybe West Chicago or Aurora or one of those Western suburbs of Chicago. I looked up and the next song I, the next sign I saw was Peoria next exit. Now, if you understand your Illinois geography, Peoria is not near Chicago. Okay. Somewhere along the line, uh, the guy who's driving missed an important sign. The one that said, Chicago, go that way. And uh, he was just driving. And I said, what are you doing? I'm like, didn't you see the signs? He goes, I wasn't looking for signs. I was just driving. (laughs) So I got in the van and I took us through Chicago and got a speeding ticket on the way back to school. It was a very frustrating weekend for me uh, to get back there and uh, take that detour. Signs point us in the right direction. They remind us where we are and where we're going, and that's sort of what life is like. Sometimes we get so consumed with the difficult task of navigating life's course that we fail to look for the signposts in our lives. Today, I want you to know the simple truth. Brian, I'll put it up here on the screen for you. In the midst of difficulties, God does give us signposts of his grace. In the midst of the darkest most difficult hours of our life. There are signposts of God's grace in our life. It's a matter of whether we look for them or not. We're in our last week in the series uh, of Ruth, uh, on the series of four chapters. We did one week on each chapter. This is it. It's a short August series for us. And today we're going to wrap the whole thing up through chapter four. And I want to remind you of a few things that have happened. If you haven't been here or haven't happened to catch the the sermons on the podcast, uh, let me just quickly bring you up to speed. We're in a period in the Bible called the period of the judges. It's a very dark time for the nation of Israel. It's before they had a king. Joshua had taken them into the land. The tribes had kind of split up the land. And Judges is a very dark book. 
you read it and things get worse and worse. The people start out following God. They fall into sin. They say, God, we don't want to do it your way. We want to do it our way. God disciplines them and brings an oppressive nation upon them. They cry out, God, we're sorry. Save us. So he does. He raises up a judge, deliverer. This happens. And and then the people follow God for a while. And then the whole thing repeats over and over and over and over again. And the book of Judges is completely depressing because you get to the end. And the last verse of Judges is... In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's a very depressing place. So, when we come to the book of Ruth, Ruth takes place somewhere in this period of the Judges. And as depressing as the book of Judges is when we read it, when we read the book of Ruth, we get a ray of hope. We get a ray of hope that God is apparently working even in the darkest of times. So chapter 1... Really, the point of, God, of chapter one was it, God is sovereign. God is sovereign and in control, but is he good? Is he kind? You know, we, in chapter one, we saw Naomi and her family left Israel during a famine. They went to this enemy country, Moab. They shouldn't have been there. They stayed there. Naomi's husbands and both her sons die. All she's left with is, is Ruth, one of her daughters-in-laws, when she comes back to Bethlehem in Israel. And, she's, and, and Naomi, if you remember from chapter 1, comes into town and the ladies run out to greet her and they say, after all this time, Naomi's back. And she says, hey, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. Call me Mara because that means bitterness. And that, that's what the Almighty God has done to me. She recognized God's sovereign, but she said he's not kind or good. The doctrine of God's sovereignty actually is a very reassuring doctrine for us. Without this, life is just random chaos. This doctrine is never in question in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, all throughout God is seen as a sovereign God. What is in question is, is God kind? In chapter 2, God begins to show Naomi that he is sovereign and indeed he's kind. Ruth, in chapter 2, we find out that Ruth just happened as as this poor uh, widow, happens to wander in this field picking up leftover pieces of grain after the harvest, just trying to get enough to eat. And she happens into the field of Boaz. And we see God is sovereignly directing her there. And we see all of a sudden this glimmer of hope because Boaz heaps on her a whole lot of grain and feeds her like she hasn't eaten in months. And, she, and Ruth comes back to Naomi with all this grain. And Naomi for the first time goes, wow, maybe God isn't done with me yet. In chapter three, we see not only is God sovereign, not only is, is he kind, but God is sovereign and kind and he acts on his kindness. And so we see Naomi put this plan into place to connect Ruth and Boaz. And, and there's this risky midnight uh, encounter between Ruth and Boaz. And, and, and Ruth basically says, hey, I'm coming, you know, I'm here. This was Naomi's plan. She directed me here. I'm laying at your feet. Do what you want with me. And Boaz says, I want to marry you. And then Naomi realizes this incredible kindness of God in her life. Today, we're going to wrap the whole thing up. We're going to see that God is sovereign and he's kind. And he gives us signposts of his grace in our life. Because in the midst of difficulties, God gives us signposts of his grace.
There's this important concept in the book of Ruth called a kinsman redeemer. We don't really have anything like this in our culture, so it's important for me. Every week I've brought you up to speed on this, but I want to do it again. A kinsman redeemer was a relative of a widow who would marry her. If a woman was a widow and had no husband in her life, it was the, the responsibility of a brother of the man who had died. If a man dies and leaves a widow, the brother of the man who had died, it's his responsibility to marry the widow and to produce children in the name of the dead husband. It's, to, it's a way that God provided to take care of the widows, to, to, to take, take care of them. They didn't have welfare in their society. So this was how a woman who had no one to help her in, and she was powerless, the kinsman redeemer was how. And so the responsibility would pass from person to person to person, depending on you know, if the man had brothers, then a nearest relative would happen. L- listen to Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'm going to read that to you. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen. Here's the law that God sets in place for the people of Israel regarding what happens when a man dies and leaves a widow. The law says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. The first son he bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, this is where it gets interesting. You see, the law didn't require a brother to do that. A brother could opt out. A relative could opt out. No one had to be a kinsman redeemer. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife... She shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of the town shall summon him and talk to him. And he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her. His brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of all the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. The man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. We don't do this anymore. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, There's not a lot of shoe taking off and spitting in in people's face. Uh, We don't necessarily do this. But listen, there is no obligation, but there is a shame. There is an honor that is at at stake here. A man can choose being spit on and (laughs) having his sandal removed and embarrassed and shamed. There's no obligation for someone to be a kinsman redeemer, but it's the right thing to do. You see, Boaz... Up to this point, we've clearly realized he's very interested in Ruth. He wants to marry her. He wants to be the kinsman redeemer. But Boaz knows that there's one who is closer in the family line to Elimelech and to Malon than Boaz is. And so Boaz does things right. That's the kind of guy he is. He's a man of love and integrity. And what we're going to see today is in the midst of difficulties, God gives us signposts of his grace First of all, let's talk about Boaz. If we look at what these signposts are here, the first signpost we're going to see in this story is Boaz. We're going to talk about his integrity and his hesed love. First of all, let's look at the integrity of Boaz. If you compare, the, the author of Ruth wants us to compare Boaz with this other closer kinsman redeemer. And so the author paints this guy in a really bad light. You may not see this when you just first read over this, but the author of Ruth wants us to say that this, see that this other kinsman redeemer, this other guy, is not so great a guy. Uh, the first thing you'll see is, meanwhile, so Boaz goes up to the town gate, 
This is where city business would be transacted. It's like the town hall or it's where the, a judge would sit. It's how things were decided. This is where the important people were at the town gate. So he went up to the town gate and when the kinsman redeemer had meant that he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. All right, you need to understand something here. Well, first of all, the author of Ruth is saying, listen, uh, when this other, he went to the gate and when this other kinsman redeemer came along, the, the phrase, the weight of that, the, the word used there is the same word in chapter two that the author used when the author said, Ruth just happened on the field of Boaz. And if you remember in chapter two, I talked about how there are no coincidences. The author is using this language. It's saying, oh, and wouldn't you know, she just happened in the field. It's the same sort of word going on right here. The author is telling us, and look, it just so happened as Boaz walked up to the gate that the guy that he needed was already right there. And so, uh, first of all, you need to understand that there's no coincidence here. God is working. The other thing you need to see is this word of the NIV translates, my friend. Okay? He says, come over here, my friend, and sit down. You sort of get the idea of he's schmoozing him, right? You know, like, hey, come here, my friend. That, that's not what he's doing. That, uh, you know Sometimes the NIV doesn't get our translation right. I'll just let you know when that happens. Uh, this is one of them. The better translation is, he said, come over here, so-and-so. It's the better translation. Come over here, oh, person who I don't like you so much that I don't even want to put your name in the text. Right? Uh, I, I like the, the New English translation of this Bible. It says, come over here, here and sit down. John Doe. I I mean, I like the weight of this. It's like the author thinks so little of this guy that he doesn't want to put his name in here. This is clearly the bad guy of the text. But Boaz does the right thing. He does things the honest way. But it doesn't mean that he's not clever. Jesus says, come here and Jesus says that his followers should be innocent as doves and wise as serpents like that. And this idea of Boaz is clever. Boaz has got a plan and he's got a clever plan of making it so he's going to be the one to marry Ruth. So we, we go in the text that Laura read for us today. And, and what we see happens is Boaz says, okay, John Doe, come over here, sit down. Um, don't move because I need to go get the elders because they have to witness what's about to happen. So don't move. And so Boaz goes and he runs off and he gets these elders and they come and they're watching these 10 elders at the gate and it's necessary for this legal transaction to, to, to play. It's kind of like he goes, okay, sit here, don't move. I got to go get the judge to make this legal. So uh, that's what he does. Boaz runs out and then Boaz lays out his case. There's this land. Now we haven't heard anything about this before in Ruth. We've never talked about this land. We've never seen this reference before. But in the book of Ruth, apparently Boaz knows this to be true, that there's a piece of land that, that basically it's up for sale. Actually, probably what happened is when Elimelech left Bethlehem and went to Moab, he probably leveraged his land. He probably took a loan out on it because he figured I won't need it. And if I don't ever come back, oh, well. And so he took a loan out on it and he hightailed it to Moab. So when Naomi comes back and Ruth comes back, this is their family land and there's probably a lien against it. And what Boaz is telling this guy is, listen, you've got the opportunity. If you pay off this loan, then you get to use this land for you. You get to redeem the land. Now there's tension mounts because look what the man says in the last half of verse four. 
he says, the, the other guy says, oh, okay. Well, that sounds like a good deal. I'll redeem it. Now, you have to understand, as the readers, the author wants us to be screaming no at this point. No, this isn't how the story's supposed to work. This guy can't redeem it. It has to be Boaz. It's a, I mean, it's a love story, right? I mean, some of you women love love stories. I know a few men who actually like love stories. And so, I mean, you, you're tracking this, and it's the point of crisis. You're going, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to work out. It's supposed to be Boaz, not this other guy. And the tension is mounted. And so then Boaz, Boaz, who is not deterred by this, he springs the rest of his plan. He says, okay, well, sure, you can redeem this land, but by the way, there's a woman attached to this, you know? He sort of gives him the other important detail here. And you'll have to marry her to get this land. Look at what this guy says in verse 6. Boaz tells him about the woman, and this the, the kinsman redeemer said, well, I can't redeem it. Because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it. You, you go ahead. It's all yours. Because, you know, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to mess with this. Here's the other thing you need to see about this other kinsman redeemer. This other kinsman redeemer, the author's painting him as this bad guy. Because why? Because all he cares about is himself at this point. Whether, listen, I, whether the guy was already married, and <laughs> I don't want to deal with that, two wives... Or whether the guy, you know, he's just making this up. The author of Ruth doesn't tell us. That's not the point. The point is all this guy cares about is himself, his own selfish interests. He's not going to do it. As opposed to Boaz, who's righteous and does the right thing. One of the things that makes Boaz, one of the things that makes him the hero of the story is that Boaz does what's right. He's a man of integrity. But the other part about it is his, his hesed. That's a word we've been using for three weeks now. The word hesed. I use it all the time because there's no good word in English that describes what hesed is. Hesed is this loving kindness of God. It's not just love. It's not just kindness. It's this relationship-oriented word that because of this relationship, I will act in a way that shows absolute love and kindness and mercy and grace to you. Boaz is this kind of guy. He's got integrity and hesed. He cares about God. He cares about Ruth. He's committed. He's not only the, he, he's not just these things. He's also the tool through which God shows his hesed love to Ruth and Naomi. <laughs> so Boaz is a tool of integrity and hesed love. Ruth is, is also a tool to show Naomi that God is sovereign and kind. I mean, look at this. Look at what Ruth does. In chapter two, Ruth comes up and he, and he sa- she says to, to Naomi, hey, Naomi, um, we're going to starve to death here, so let me go get you some food. I mean, let's get a supposed to, I'll go out and glean. Naomi at chapter 2 was sitting on her rear end, depressed and not moving. Ruth said, I'll go. I'll show kindness to you. And in chapter 1, she had already showed this kindness when, remember, she says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. This idea that your gods will be my God. Ruth devotes herself in kindness. To Naomi. You know, Boaz and Ruth are both these pictures of God's Hesed love. And you know, it's really an example and a model for the church. For every believer and follower of Jesus that reads this text, we should understand that God is calling the church to be Hesed love for others. Ruth's the picture of the bride of Christ. And we need to find ways in our lives to be the hands and feet of Jesus to others. It, It's more than just volunteering, right? 
But Hesed love is more than just volunteering to do something nice. The world volunteers so that at the end of the day, the world can feel good about itself and go, oh, look, look at me. I, I volunteered. I'm great. That's not what Hesed love is. Christians give themselves to others because Christ gave himself to them. We had an opportunity in our church that uh, we, there's just um, a woman in our church that needed to be moved on Thursday night. And so I sent out a few emails and before you know it, like 25 or 30 people showed up to help her move. I mean, that's the kind of picture of just, hey, I'm not doing this so I can feel good about myself. I'm doing this because I want to show Hesed love to others. So one of the things that we see in Boaz's integrity and Hesed love is that Boaz balances these really well. He's not, he's not so merciful and kind that he's willing to sacrifice his integrity, but he doesn't just focus on integrity so much that he forgets to show Hesed love to others. So many Christians go one way or the other. We go to one place and we go, okay, um, you know, I am about moral correctness for our society. And so we jump in and we get involved in politics and we say, we just want to make laws so people either do this or that. Or we get in this thing of, we can't be a culture that has this moral problem. And so we're going to be involved in changing the the laws of the land. And and we get so uh, consumed with this integrity piece this moral correctness piece that we totally forget to show the kindness of God. There's other Christians that totally were willing to throw out all their morals and all their baggage just to jump in and help people. As Christians, we know it's not even a balance. It's just need to, we need to have both. We need to be people who say, I will live like Boaz and do what's right. And when we do what's right, it involves showing this hesed kindness to others. That's one of the signposts of God's grace. Did you know you can be a signpost? You can be a signpost of God's grace in someone's life. It's the first signpost we see. And the second signpost we see in this text is God's faithfulness. First, we saw Boaz's integrity, Hesed love, Ruth's Hesed love. We see that. Second thing we see is God's faithfulness. So Boaz sets out to redeem Ruth. And of course, the man, as we've seen, this other man says, okay, Boaz, listen, I don't want to get involved in this. This is too muddy for me. Um, you go ahead and take care of it. And so, you know, he sort of does this sign in the dotted line thing where, you know, the author tells us back in this day, they would take off a sandal and the sandal was like signing on the dotted line. This is the legal contract. It's a little different. You know, I, I don't know if we should bring this back or not, but what, regardless, it's like a signature. It's the sign of the, um, this legal transaction taking place. And then Boaz declares for everyone to hear that he effectively is taking Ruth to be his wife. He's redeeming it. He's becoming the kinsman redeemer. And all of this points to God's faithfulness. Boaz marries Ruth and he redeems the whole family line. I said on week one that the book of Ruth was wrongly titled Ruth. The book of Ruth, I really believe, if we're, it's really about God's faithfulness. But if we're pointing to a character in Ruth, it's Naomi. Because Naomi, in chapter 1, had given up on God. She'd given up. She'd thrown up her hands and say, the Almighty has it out for me. But God was faithful to Naomi in providing a kinsman redeemer. And God was faithful to her in, in, in chapter 4. We read here in just a little bit that God actually provides a son to be born 
So Naomi has a grandson. The fascinating piece of God's faithfulness here is that we get the idea from the text when we read, Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years. And she had no children in 10 years. And so here we see this picture of God being faithful at taking a barren woman and providing an heir for Naomi, a child for Ruth. And God is faithful. We also see God's faithfulness in this complete reversal of the blessing. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. In verse 14... We, we see this, you got to, don't miss this, okay? This is really important. There's this reversal of chapter one. Remember in chapter one, when Naomi comes back to Bethlehem and Naomi says, um, don't call me, uh, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She comes back and who, it's, it's the women of the town. There's this fuss, this hubbub in chapter one, then coming around and saying no. And so there's this, like, Naomi's coming to the women of the town. The women in the town are there and she's saying, my life stinks. I've been abandoned. I'm empty. Watch what happens in chapter 4. The women, well, in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. In chapter 1, the women are, hey, welcome back. Boy, this stinks for you. In chapter 4, look, chapter 1, she's empty. Chapter 4, the women are like, you are full. Life is good. God is faithful. God is faithfully providing signposts. And he is faithful. It starts with Ruth. She's this Gentile foreigner who has no value, but she's committed to Naomi. In chapter two, we see this signpost again of God's grace to Naomi because Ruth just happens to glean in the field of Boaz. And then we see that she comes home with these 22 liters of grain. She's got a full belly. Then she continues with this glimpse of hope, Naomi's plan, Boaz's kindness to them both. All along in Ruth, God left signposts of his grace. Can you see the signposts in your life of God's grace? Or have you got to the point like Naomi where it's just too hard to look anymore? John Piper says this in his book, um, A Sweet and Bitter Providence, which is about the book of Ruth. He says, the book of Ruth was written to help us see the signposts of grace in our lives, the ones that are visible. It was also written to help us trust God's grace when the clouds are so thick that we can't see the road, let alone the signs on the side of the road. Can you see the signposts in your life? Friends, we must see them because they're there. We must look even when it's hard. And when we can't see any, we cling to the book of Ruth. We cling to the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery and thrown in jail, but eventually God used him to redeem the people of Israel. We cling to the story of Job who, through all the suffering in Job's life, Job never got the picture of what was going on in heaven between God and Satan. Job Job never understood 
But we cling to this truth that God is God. Because these people are our people. When we look at Naomi, Naomi's not just a, a Jewish woman that lived a long time ago. Job's not just a dude who lived a long, long time ago. Right? Joseph's not just a guy who was in Egypt and we, most of us never been there. We can't relate. These aren't the people of the Bible. These are our people. I mean, I, I love it. They're part of this Christian heritage, God's people. We're part of God's people. So when we say Naomi suffered and God was faithful, it's like saying my mom suffered and God is faithful. These aren't abstract characters. We can cling to them. We can own them. These, they really believe they really suffered and God really was faithful. God is faithful. And don't miss this, okay? If we miss this, we've blown the entire book of Ruth. Don't miss this. You see, the book of Ruth is written to talk about God's faithfulness. And the ultimate kinsman redeemer. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. This book looks forward to Jesus because he's the ultimate kinsman redeemer. The, The largest signpost of God's grace in our lives is Jesus. We are all Naomi. We are all Ruth. We are all in need of a kinsman redeemer, and that man is Jesus. Everything in Ruth must be read in the light of Jesus. In the incarnation, Jesus became one of us. He became, in essence, our brother. He became someone who could be our kinsman redeemer. In his life, he positioned himself to be a tool of God's hesed love to us. In his death, he purchased us from the grips of death, the effects of sin, And in his resurrection, he gave us new life. So we must remember that we are Ruth and Naomi in need of redemption. And no matter what happens and no matter what signs we're missing, this is the largest signpost. And and no matter what difficulty comes along, you must know that your Redeemer lives. That he is our kinsman Redeemer. In the midst of difficulties, God gives us signposts of his grace. And the biggest one is Jesus. The third thing that we're going to talk about today real quickly here is that God's faithfulness is bigger than we expect. The story of Naomi and Ruth isn't just about providing fullness for them. I mean, even there, it's a great story. It's a great story to look and see how God was faithful to Naomi, how God was faithful to Ruth. That's a great story. But God's faithfulness is so much bigger than just that. First of all, God was faithful to an entire nation. God was faithful to an entire nation. God showed his hesed love to all of them because Ruth had this baby Obed. And they bring him to Naomi and they set him on her lap. And look what she says in verse 17. The women again, they're there and they say, nope, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. The quintessential king of all the Old Testament, King David. This is where King David comes from. God's faithfulness to an entire nation happened here with God being faithful to Naomi, faithful to Ruth, faithful to the people. But it doesn't just end there. God's not just faithful to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. God's faithful to the entire world. Okay, look at 18. Here we go. This then is the family line of Perez. We'll talk about why it starts with Perez in just a second. 
For as with the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Ashen, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz. So we're to Boaz, okay? Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David. Here's some names I want to highlight in here because this is very important. The, the first name that I want to highlight is not actually in this text, it's in Matthew. You know who, Matthew tells us who Boaz's mother was. I highlighted this in, in week one. Rahab. There's a prostitute here. Can you believe that? Rahab. Then we have Ruth in this line. Ruth wasn't even a good Israelite. She's an alien, a foreigner. She's from the enemy, the Moabites. She's a pagan in, 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 those, in, in the people's eyes during her time. She would have been worth about nothing. In the, in the book of Ruth, the word Ruth the Moabitess is used seven times. That's like a quarter of all the references in all of scripture. The author is highlighting us for us that Ruth was not just this, you know, cool, good Jewish lady. No, she was the enemy. So God used a prostitute and he's the enemy in the line of David. He's a prostitute and the enemy in the line of Jesus. Because we know that David was a forefather of Jesus. And the last one that's fascinating is, why does this start with Perez? Why is he the first one? Why not Judah, Perez's father, Judah? Why wouldn't he start with that? Because that that would make more sense. Judah's more well-known. Because the author is highlighting for us this terrible, crazy story that happened in Genesis chapter 38. It's tucked right in the middle of Joseph. You sometimes wonder, why is this story of Tamar and Judah right in the middle of this story of Joseph? And and if you read it, here's what happened. Uh, Judah had a son. The son died. Tamar was the son's wife. Um, This whole family kinsman redeemer thing was not working right. And so finally... Uh, he says, Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, um, he says, okay, listen, I've got one more son left here. He's really young. So just hang around till he grows up and then I'll give uh, you to him in marriage. But the youngest son is growing up and Judah's not given. I mean, Judah's not given him to her. Something's wrong here and Judah doesn't want to be faithful to this kinsman redeemer. So he doesn't do it. So what Tamar does... Um, how do I put this in rated PG terms, okay? Uh, Tamar goes, disguises herself on the road as a professional woman, okay? And, uh, and um, all of a sudden, Tamar is pregnant, right? And they're going to say, oh, she's a prostitute. We're going to kill her because she should have done this. And she produces Judas, uh, his, his uh, staff and some other things that he had. And to show, hey, the man who did this to me, in other words, she said, if you're not going to redeem me, I'm going to do it myself. And Judas says, I honor you because you're more faithful. You have more integrity than I do. This is a mess, you guys. This is a total mess. These are the people that the author of Ruth is highlighting in the ancestry of David and Jesus. God doesn't just bless the Jews. He blesses the whole world. That's the point. It's always been his heart. Because in the line of the Messiah, Jesus, it has Gentiles and prostitutes and sinners and the messed up and the hard-hearted. And all of that is a signpost of God's grace. You may never see the map 
of your life. You may only get a signpost. I read of a woman, uh, and a, a woman and her husband from Vancouver, Canada. In May, this showed up in the news. She had uh, was traveling from uh, Vancouver down to Las Vegas for a trade show. Her and her husband were. They got in the car and they simply put the address of where they were going in their GPS. It didn't occur to them that the GPS might get it wrong. So they literally, did, they just put it in and they started driving and they followed this thing. And they ended up on some logging road somewhere in Nevada, totally, completely lost. And their van got buried in the mud and they couldn't get out. And literally there was no one around them. They were in the middle of nowhere. And this woman survived for seven weeks in her van. Seven weeks until somebody finally found her. She was drinking from a stream that was just nearby. And she lived in this van. Her husband went out and got lost and they never found him. So much for your faithful GPS, huh? Whenever I type stuff into the GPS, I got to see a map. I got to know where it's going. I want to see the big picture. I don't want to just go turn to turn to turn. I want to see the big picture of this. But the truth of the matter is is that in life, we don't get the big map. We don't get to spot, oh, here's how it's coming, here's what's going. We get the GPS with turn-by-turn navigation. But here's the difference. Your GPS is not faithful. It will probably mess up. God is utterly faithful, and he will not. So we trust him for turn-by-turn navigation, even though we can't see the big picture in our life of where we are going. And don't miss this, okay? If you're in the midst of something right now and you're like, I can't see the map, right? Get ready. God's doing something. He knows the map. He's not messed up. He knows where you're going. But the truth is, you may never be aware of the big picture of why you've taken this road in life. You may never be aware. Check this out. Naomi never knew the full extent what God was doing. Naomi was dead probably by the time David became king. And and certainly uh, this book was written probably well after uh, Naomi's life was over. So she didn't probably ever see the fullness of her descendant got to be king. She didn't know the full extent. Ruth probably didn't know it. Boaz certainly didn't know it. None of them certainly knew that out of their line, out of this situation, the Messiah of the world would come. Now, Jesse may have started to get an idea when he saw his son anointed king that at least God was doing something bigger through all this than what he first thought. Even the author of Ruth didn't understand the fullness of this map to see that all this leads to Jesus. We had to wait hundreds of years from the writing of this book to see its true significance. The sovereign loving kindness of God is the only hope we have in navigating life. And the key is to look for the signposts of his grace. Don't expect to get the whole map. Look for the signposts. Because God is sovereign. God is loving kind. It shows loving kindness, Hesed, to us. That's his character. And there are signposts of his grace along the way. In the midst of suffering... In the midst of difficulties, God gives us signposts of his grace. There's a song that's been playing on the radio. Um, I've asked Larissa to sing it for us because it just fits perfectly with this message of Ruth.